so very kind of you to be able to do that for us, so we say thank you. If you've got your Bibles, will you open up with me to Matthew chapter 3 this morning? Matthew chapter 3. We are in our series called The Glorious Bride, seeing the importance of the local church to the world. We believe God has given us this gift as a family, so it's our joy to be able to pastor over you and to be your shepherds and to be able to worship the King with you. It really is our joy. But this morning we're talking about the second ordinance that has been gifted to us as a church. We talked about communion last week. This morning we get to talk about baptism. So I'm going to read Matthew chapter 3 to us. Um, as we begin this morning to kind of start, we're looking at Jesus' baptism. Hopefully, as we see Jesus' baptism, we'll see the importance of our baptism as well. Matthew chapter 3. I've got to turn there myself. It's getting hard to turn these pages. Starting in verse 1. Matthew writes this. He says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John, he wore this garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And then in Jerusalem and all of Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were being baptized by him in the river of the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am unworthy to even carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His, his winning no fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the shaft, will, will, he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus, he came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have been prevented him saying, I, I need to be baptized by you, and, and yet you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John the Baptist, he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he, he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Well, have you ever been in shock? I mean, really, really in shock. I imagine this was a common occurrence for the people of Uruguay with the behavior of their 40th president. See, this 40th president was gifted the opportunity to receive a salary over $12,000 a month. 
and on top of that to be able to live in the presidential palace. But this president shockingly turned it down. Instead, he wanted to live on his modest farm in which he sold the flower mums. Not really the presidential persona that you want. But who turns down a presidential palace to go live on this tiny little farm selling mums? Well, it was President Pepe, as they called him. But it gets worse. He, he didn't want the presidential limousine. No, he wanted to drive around in his 1987 Volkswagen Bug that was only worth $1,800 at the time. So imagine you living in this country and you're driving along and you turn to your right, you look at your window and you see your president driving in this beat-up Volkswagen bug with a bunch of mums in the back seat. Shocking. And in a world in which all these politicians and presidents long for more and more money, this was not their president. He gave 90% of his income away refused his retirement, and again, as you're looking at this man, the people had to be just shocked, turning down the presidential palace, living on this beat-up farm, driving a tractor on occasion, but then his Volkswagen bug with, with carrying mums, shocking. But as shocking as his life was, let me tell you, it's nothing compared to Jesus' life. Because as we look at Jesus' life and His ministry and His kingdom, it comes to us in this upside-down fashion. Here it is, the one we've awaited for 400 years. The beginning of Jesus' ministry is told to us in Matthew 3. The King has arrived. His kingdom is being ushered in. And you would think there would be parades. Man, you would think there would be trumpets blasting. You would think they would have this red carpet and dignitaries all around. In fact, I imagine it kind of like the movie Aladdin. When Prince Ali would come and they would have all these trumpets and elephants and this, this big grand occasion for the king. But yet, none of that is seen in our passage. No, the kingdom is ushered in by this, by this odd man by the name of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is not wearing his finest clothes, a tuxedo or any of that, but yet he's dressed in camel's hair with a leather belt. And yet it just keeps getting odder, if that's a word. Here Jesus comes to him. And we see Jesus arriving, and, and Jesus is asking this odd fellow to baptize him. And we know in the passage that John is thinking, this doesn't make sense. I should be the one who's baptized by you. And we see this type of argument take place in verse 14. And yet, isn't it shocking that Jesus begins to undergo a baptism that signified a confession of sin and repentance when Jesus had no reason to confess and no sin. And we're looking at this thing and we're thinking, is this really, is this really how Jesus' ministry is going to begin? With the King, the Messiah, being baptized by this odd fellow wearing camel's hair and dunked in some water, and dunked in some water that represent a confession of sin when he had none? It's shocking. 
It's backwards. It's so strange. But this is exactly, exactly how our Savior's ministry begins. And yet I love this passage because it teaches us so much about who Jesus is. It teaches us that we should be willing to follow in his humility, be willing to attach ourselves to our, his death so that we can attach ourselves to his resurrection. This morning I want to talk to you on the topic of baptism and not just Jesus' baptism. I'll talk to you about the importance of this ordinance, this gift to the church. But before I do so, we, we need to see why and how special Jesus is. Because if we see his excellencies, we see how great he is, it allows us to, to long to attach ourselves to him. And this passage, I love it because this is exactly what Matthew does. He uses every dimension of this chapter to point us to Jesus. He uses every part and every word to point us that, yes, Jesus is not just any old person, but he is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the one who has longed to come to save his people from their sins, and he has arrived. We see him do that in three different ways in our passage. The first way he does that is he's, he's going to use John the Baptist as the means, to, as a proof text to show us that, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one. In fact, he does that in two different ways in just John the Baptist's life itself. First of all, we see in our passage that, that Matthew points us to the reality that John the Baptist is the one who was promised in Isaiah chapter 40. We see it in our text that he says that, yes, that, 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 that John the Baptist is the one who is crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, a direct quote from Isaiah 40. The promise that God would send a forerunner to the Messiah, one who would announce that the Messiah is coming. And Matthew says, this is John the Baptist. This is the one that was long been promised in Isaiah chapter 40 that would come and announce the Messiah's coming. And that we see him do this again, not only in verse 3 does he quote from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40, but then in chapter, uh, verse 4, notice what he does. He tells us specifically what John the Baptist is wearing. He doesn't do that just because John the Baptist is this weird old fellow who's wearing some camel hair and wearing a leather belt. But he does so because in Micah chapter 4, again, God promised to send a forerunner, this Elijah-like character that would come and announce the Messiah's coming. And if you look in in, in, in Malachi chapter 4, what do we see? We see this, this Elijah-like character who's going to be wearing, or Elijah actually in 2 Kings, wore this animal's hair and a leather belt. So when we see John the Baptist, it shows us that yes, this is this Elijah-like character, the forerunner who promised, who would announce the Messiah's coming. So notice what Matthew does. He says, if John the Baptist is this one who was promised in Isaiah chapter 4 and in Malachi 4, to be the forerunner to the Messiah, then that must mean the one who comes after him, who is Jesus, is the Messiah. He's the anointed one. So yes, he uses first John the Baptist to point us to the beauty of who Jesus is, but secondly, he uses the baptism itself. The question we should be asking is, why is Jesus being baptized by John? But why is he the one who is sinless, coming to, to interact and and participate in, in a baptism that signifies the confession of sin as we see in our text and a repentance of sin. 
It doesn't make sense. So we see John the Baptist in verse 14 saying, hey Jesus, this is all backwards. I should be the one who's doing this. And, and he tries to persuade Jesus, hey, this shouldn't be taking place. But notice how Jesus answers him. And in Jesus' answer in verse 15, it actually shows us why Jesus get baptized in the first place. And notice what he says in verse 15. Jesus replies, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. It's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What is in essence what Jesus is saying in this moment is he's saying, I am being baptized to fulfill your righteousness, mankind's righteousness. See, if Jesus is going to be the Lamb of God, if He is going to be our substitute, it means He had to fulfill our righteousness on our behalf, and He begins doing that by participating in this baptism. So, so he, he begins to unite himself with, with sinful mankind in this gesture and he begins to participate, fulfilling all what God has required of us so that he could become our righteousness on our behalf. And we see his immense amount of love in this act because how easy it would be for Jesus to be misunderstood. We're told in the text that there's many people who are coming to John the Baptist. And imagine these people who are looking upon Jesus, participating again in an act that confesses sin and repentance of sin, and they would just think and look at him as, well, maybe he's just another ordinary man, just coming like the rest of them to confess his sin and repent of it. And yet he's willing to be misunderstood for the sake to become our righteousness. He's willing to be misunderstood as he begins to encompass this dynamic of becoming the, uh, the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. One who comes to attach himself to sinful mankind to become our sin on our behalf. That yes, it's pointing to the reality that he's preparing himself to be the Lamb of God. To become our substitute. He's saying, yes, Matthew says, look at Jesus. Not only look at John the Baptist as the forerunner to the Messiah, but look at what Jesus is doing. He's doing this to fulfill all righteousness. He's obedient to the Father and what the Father has called him to, to be our perfect substitute. But next, notice what takes place. The Father speaks. And what does the Father say? This is my Son. Don't, don't confuse him with the rest. No, this one is special. He's my beloved son, and I am well pleased in what he is doing. You see, what, what, what's so fascinating about this text is we only see the father speak twice, and yet he says the same thing in both instances. He says, this is the son. In fact, what's so interesting about the end of, of, of this passage is we see three things begin to take place. Here Jesus is baptized, and as he's being baptized, the, the heavens are opened. The Spirit comes and anoints upon him rest. And then we hear the Father speak. In Jewish tradition, they had three traditions and three kind of signs that would show them that the coming of God's kingdom has arrived. And guess what those three signs were? The opening of the heavens. 
the anointing of the Spirit, and thirdly, the Father speaking, or God speaking, and we see all within the text. Matthew's saying a new kingdom has arrived. Jesus' kingdom, it's upon us, because we see all three of those things. First, we see the heavens open. This barrier that once was before us and God has now been removed as God has come down to dwell with His people through the person of Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, we we see the the, the promise of Isaiah 64 in which Isaiah would cry out in Isaiah 64, rend open the heavens and come down, God. And God came down. The heavens were opened. And now God was dwelling with His people. And the second thing we see The heavens are opened, and now this this Spirit comes down and rests upon Jesus. Well, this is vastly important to Jesus' ministry. Remember, if He's going to be the Messiah, the Christ, which means the anointed one, He has to be anointed. And now the Spirit comes and anoints Him, and it fulfills Him. And what we see is it empowers Him. And the rest of Jesus' ministry so fascinating. It's dependent upon the Spirit in all things. You just look at what it says as Jesus is then led, led by the Spirit into the desert right after this event. It's the Spirit that leads him, and Jesus willingly follows. It's, it's, it's remarkable. Here's what's so crazy. The Spirit that comes to dwell in Jesus begins to dwell in us through our salvation story, that when we get saved, God puts His Spirit in us, and look at the progression as you look throughout history, that now is God is dwelling with His people through the person of Jesus, but then He begins to partake in His death, burial, and resurrection, and He leaves, and guess what happens? Not only is it God dwelling amongst His people, but it's now God dwelling in His people. That you have the third person of the Trinity living inside you, the one that anointed Jesus, the same Spirit. It's fascinating. It's breathtaking that we have the promise that God will never leave us nor forsake us because He's in us. Do you see how remarkable that promise truly is? It's remarkable. But not only does the Spirit come down, then we hear the Father's Word. And again, God only speaks twice in Matthew's Gospel. God the Father, he he speaks here in Matthew 3. Again, he speaks in Matthew chapter 17 in the transfiguration, and he says the same thing. This is my son. Puts Jesus in her. He says, this man's special. He's my son. My beloved son, in which I am well pleased. And in Matthew 17, he says, it'd be well to listen to him. Jesus' identity has always been the son, and it will always be the son. And we see these three signs pointing to the reality that the kingdom has arrived. See, Matthew has done everything in this text to point us to Jesus. Now, Jesus is special. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. The one that would come to become the perfect lamb to be our substitute on the cross. We see it in John the Baptist. We see it through Jesus' own baptism. We see it as the heavens are rendered open. We see it as the Spirit descends, and we see it as the Father speaks. Everything in this passage points to the reality that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. 
So if you come into this room asking questions, I don't know who Jesus is, it's said so clearly in this passage. He's the, he's the one that we center our services around because he's the one that come to die in our place and offer forgiveness for mankind. But now we ask the question, well, why begin with Jesus' baptism? Well, I think there's a couple reasons for that. First of all, we need to understand that if Jesus get baptized, should not we get baptized as well? The one who was sinless, who didn't even need to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness, does so. Should we not too? But secondly, we have to understand that our baptism centers around the theology of Christ. To put it even more clear, our baptism centers around our confession in Jesus Christ. This morning, I want to give us three aspects that we need to understand about baptism. This great ordinance that God has gifted the church. And the first one is this. As you and I look in the New Testament, we see the primary way for them to publicly confess their confession to show that they have been saved is through their baptism. In fact, we begin to see baptism as this time of them publicly confessing their, their faith in Jesus Christ. And, and that's why I've used this illustration for a long time. I know you've probably heard it before. But I like to think of baptism like my wedding ring. When we think of baptism, we think of a wedding ring. And just like baptism doesn't make us saved, my wedding ring didn't make me married. It's a sign. It's a way to publicly confess there's this, this thing that has changed in my life. Same instance, we need to understand that baptism doesn't make us saved. We just looked at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, that we have been saved through grace, as Paul says. And he emphasized the fact that we need to understand that we've been saved by grace through faith. And then what does he say? This is a gift. It's not of your own doing. So he emphasized the fact this is not of your own doing. This is not by works so that nobody can boast. He says it four different times to make sure that we understand that we are saved by grace through faith alone. So we're not saved by baptism. So if we're not saved by baptism, what is baptism all about? Well, this is what it's about. Just like we come back to this wedding analogy, it's a sign that this wedding ring, when I got this wedding ring, when did I get it? I got it on my wedding day. And when did I place it in my hand? After I said my vows. I said my vows to my wife that I would unite myself in union to my wife and, and this didn't make me married but now it's a sign that I have made those vows and those promises to unite myself to my wife. Same sense. We get baptized to say that we have been united to Jesus. That yes, we have made vows and confession of faith to say that we have been united to Jesus' death and will be united to Jesus' resurrection. So by faith, we begin to say, yes, we partake in baptism to show the world that we are now taken, that we belong to Jesus. So we see it as this public confession that, yes, we are believers. Second thing we have to understand is not only is it a public confession, but it's the perfect illustration to portray our gospel story. You just look at baptism, why we're so thankful for communion, because it tells the gospel story. This is Jesus' bread, as he breaks the bread, this is my body broken for you. And you take the cup, 
It's a sign of the new covenant, his blood shed on our behalf. And yet the same thing can be said about our baptism as it portrays the gospel story so perfectly. Just think about it for a second. Imagine I'm dunking somebody into the water. What is taking place is they're dunked into the water. It's showing that they have attached themselves by faith to Jesus' death. So therefore they die with Jesus. The old has passed away in us because it has been buried. But guess what comes next? We have a new self. We come up and rise anew as we attach ourselves to Jesus' resurrection. That we are now a new creation in Christ Jesus. So we died to, 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 to our old self. We died with Jesus and we rise anew to new life. And then there's the picture of the water. Is it symbolic for us being washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ? Our sins have been washed by Jesus' blood and we have been made new, white as snow. So do you see how it illustrates for us perfectly the gospel story? It reminds us that yes, what has taken place. And, and what we notice in the scriptures is this is exactly what Paul writes in Romans uh, chapter 6. Notice the imagery as he talks about baptism. Romans chapter 6, he writes this, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have also been baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, within by baptism into death in order that just, Christ, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. He says something very similar in Colossians 2 verse 12 having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through uh, faith in the powerful working of God. So yes, it's not only this public declaration, but we see it as this perfect illustration of what has taken place in our gospel story as we put our faith in Jesus Christ. Those two things are going to be vastly important. Because if it's a confession of our faith in Jesus Christ... And it illustrates perfectly what took place in our justification when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. Should not baptism then be done immediately or close to conversion? The Scriptures seems to think so. In fact, as you're reading the Scriptures, what we notice is that baptism and faith in Jesus Christ go hand in hand. Immediately as those who have confessed and put their faith in Jesus Christ, immediately what we see in the book of Acts is they get baptized as well. And again, this should make sense to us because, again, it's this public declaration. It's, this, it's declaring that they put their faith in Jesus Christ. And secondly, it illustrates for them what just took place. So why would I wait to put on my wedding ring after my vows? Shouldn't I do that immediately after if it's supposed to remind me of those vows? Baptism should be the same that we begin to put our faith in Jesus Christ and baptism should be the sign to us that what has taken place, that we can publicly declare our faith in Jesus Christ. And what we notice actually in the scriptures is something very fascinating take place. Because as we see them simultaneously take place in the book of Acts, somebody confesses their faith in Jesus Christ, they're saved, baptism follows as a public declaration of that faith. They went so hand in hand that something interesting takes place. Same thing that took place with the words of walking down the sawdust trail in the 1920s. If you're all the 1920s, you understand that Billy Sunday was this man who 
who was a previous baseball player, comes to faith in Jesus Christ and begins to have these revivals take place as he begins to become kind of like a Billy Graham character. As Billy Graham, just like uh, Billy Sunday, just like Billy Graham, they begin to have these revivals. And Billy Sunday used to put up these tents and he would do altar calls. He would call these people to come to faith in Jesus Christ as they walked down the middle aisle. Well, imagine he's got a problem. Because as he's calling these people to come down the middle aisle, he either is creating a big dust storm, because there's dust, it's outside, it's under a tent, that now everybody's coughing in the midst of this tent as people are coming forward, or if he wets the, the dust, then he's created a big mud bath. That they're going to walk down and slip in the mud or whatever takes place. So Billy Sunday came up with the idea to put sawdust down. So therefore, it would do two things. Not only would it kind of keep the people's feet kind of quiet as they would step on the sawdust to kind of damper the sound, but also would keep the dust away. So when he did these altar calls, it wasn't the sawdust walking down the sawdust trail that made people saved, but they began to associate walking down that sawdust trail with salvation. Because as they walked down the sawdust trail, what would take place is they would confess their sins in Jesus Christ, or confess their sins before Jesus and ask for forgiveness of sins and then conf- and put their faith in Jesus. So what we see is that walking down the sawdust trail actually becomes synonymous with putting your faith in Jesus. So when somebody asks you, hey, when did you get saved? Somebody would say, well, I got saved walking down, or I, got, I, I, I walked down the sawdust trail in 1922 and everybody knew what they were talking about. Just saying the words, walking down the sawdust trail, meant that they, that individual was saved. Something very similar takes place with Pauline theology as well. Because baptism almost gets associated right afterwards, this confession of faith and this, 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 this symbolic nature of what's taking place. And in many forms and ways, this word baptism becomes synonymous for salvation throughout the rest of the Scriptures. In fact, listen to what Paul writes as well. In Galatians 3, verse 27, he says, For many of you, were, as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Or the language in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, for it says, For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. So we see this word used in two different ways as we walk through the Scriptures. One sense, water baptism, but then it begins to form into a sense of a word for salvation. Because the words are so closely associated. That's going to be vastly important for what we understand baptism to be next. Not as it only a public declaration of our faith. Not only is it symbolic to our gospel stories, it tells the gospel story through illustration for us, but lastly, it becomes an anchor in our life. An anchor, when we begin to doubt our faith, we remember that we have been baptized, which then remembers that we have confessed and our sin, uh, uh, repented of our sin and put our, our faith in Jesus Christ. But also, notice what Paul does in Romans chapter 6 again. He uses as an anchor in our life to remind us that if we've been baptized, we've been transformed. He's saying, remember. He says, have you not been baptized and baptized into Christ's death? In essence, what he's saying is because you've been saved, you should not live in the light of your old self. Because you've been baptized, this anchor in your life, you look back, it should remind you to live a new life, a different life, a life pursuing holiness, a life pursuing Jesus. So yes, it serves as an anchor or reminder of what has taken place in our life so that when we ever doubt our faith, 
ever walk and get a little straight off the line of what we're called to, to, to live by, it would be that reminder and that anchor that would pull us back. And Paul would say, do you remember you got baptized? Live differently. You're called to be different. In fact, I'm reminded of the story of one pastor. We'll end on this story. It was the Greek poet and a doctor by the name of Nicander. Nicander lived some 200 years before Jesus Christ, so uh, he didn't know Jesus, but he began to, to, to share this strange recipe talking about pickles. I guess pickles were very popular even before Jesus was even alive. But this poet, this Greek poet, begins to use this word and begins to describe this recipe for, uh, to, to make pickles. But what's so interesting about this recipe is he uses two different words in the Greek. The first word describing this cucumber that's dipped and then comes out of the water, this boiling water, to kind of prepare it for the next stage, he uses the word bapto. But then he uses a specific word for the next step in this ingredients. This word is the immersion, this continual immersion into the vinegar, which then transforms this cucumber into becoming a pickle. And then he uses the word baptizo. There's a difference. He's using one in the sense of it coming in and out, but then he transforms and uses a different word as it immerses and it continually lays there in the vinegar as it transforms state. As we look throughout the New Testament, we see one word used with, for baptism, and it's always the word, not bapto, but it's baptizo. And this pastor uses this illustration to point to the fact that this is on purpose, that when we are baptized, that we are called to, to be continually immersed with Jesus Christ in our life, that we are con continually connecting ourselves to Jesus' life, His death, and His resurrection. There is no coming off of that con connection. And you notice what takes place in the same thing with the, with the pickle, right? It once was a cucumber, and no longer tastes like a cucumber because it's been immersed in the vinegar and all you taste now is the vinegar as it transforms into a pickle. And he's saying you should be so immersed with Jesus Christ. You no longer taste the old self of yourself, but people should only taste Jesus in you. We see three things about baptism. Public declaration of our faith in Jesus Christ. Secondly, symbolic of our gospel story, but lastly, it serves as an anchor to remind us that we are changed now. Not because of the baptism itself, but what the baptism represents. Those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, it transforms us. That we have a new heart. The Spirit of God now lives in us so that we should no longer live in the old self, but now we are new. Is that how we're living and isn't it great that God would give us this anchor and this reminder in our life? That when we would ever forget what has taken place in our life, we can look back on baptism to remind us. That's his gift to the church. Not only has he given us communion, but he's given us baptism to show forth the gospel story in our lives. It really is true that he thinks of this church as his glorious bride. And he has poured out his blessings upon his bride time and time again. And hopefully in this series, you're beginning to see the gracious work of who Jesus is. That he's so gracious and so merciful to his people. 
that he would love his bride enough to give his life for his bride. And he's given us the gift, not only being a family, but he's given us the gift of communion and now baptism. And next week we'll see the beautiful care of the body of Christ. Let's pray and thank him for what he has given us. God, we are thankful. Thankful for all the blessings you pour out on your people. God, this morning I'm reminded that you are still sovereign and you are still in control even when the world is in shambles. So God, we pause and we pray for your church across the globe that shalom would reign true even in the midst of war in Israel, in Ukraine, Lord, that you would use your church to, to show forth your love for your people. God, be with your church. Build your church. Comfort your people through the church. We pray, Lord, that our eyes would be fastened upon you in the midst of chaos that happens in our world that we'd hold to the hope that comes through Jesus Christ, that one day soon, you're coming back for your people and you will gather your church and we will be with you for all of eternity. God, we pray for those who have lost loved ones in the midst of the last couple days. Would you comfort them? Would you be with them? Would you bring peace? Peace. And it's our prayer that as it is on heaven, would it be true on our earth? Build your church. Across the globe, build your church right here at Faithful Bible. For your purposes, your end, and your glory alone. We pray these things in your son's precious name.